Good morning, good morning. I am Levi Lika, my pronouns are they, them, and I am the officiant today. Welcome to everyone for our multimedia platform, whether you're here in the hall, watching on Zoom, or catching the recording later. We are one community unified across time and space, gathering to affirm our values and commit to a better world. If you are on Zoom, please check the chat for a welcome and various tips from Joe Klein, today's Zoom chat usher. If you're here in the hall and would like assistive listening devices, please ask the sound team in the back. Visitors, if you are here in person, please stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or a membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. Those of you visiting now online, now or later, we invite you to send an email to maceo at m-a-c-e-o-t at ethicalsociety.org or to fill out a connection form, which you can find at tiny.cc slash westconnects. I will now read a few greetings that folks have written in the Zoom chat. Folks joining in virtually can use this time to get a candle to light during our candle lighting ceremony. Just one moment. Shirley Storm says, good morning, everyone. Laura Disculio says, good morning. Cynthia Goodman says, good morning, all. Laura Steele says, morning all. Hope to see all of us at Wes and beyond. Margaret Conway says, good morning all. Good to be with you virtually. With a few greetings from people online, it is good to connect and share this time together. Opening words this morning are from Reverend Sophia Bentecourt, former assistive professor, assistant professor of theology and ethics at Star King School for the ministry. We are in control of what we do our, with our daily living. If we, each one of us, represent a missing remnant in the fabric of our collective future, then together we can lean into a possibility that we have yet to fully experience in human history, a collective wholeness an unassailable good. So immerse yourselves unapologetically and go out into the world and live knowing that your faith matters. Our opening music today is The Great Unknown. light streets are empty and you don't feel right you didn't want to let yourself down so don't be scared to get out there's a thousand voices saying the time is now
Welcome once again. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you are interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up and reserve a specific Sunday at tiny.cc readsop. Today's reader is Amy Foltz, a West newcomer who's been joining us for the past handful of weeks. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Amy Foltz. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm reading the Statement of Purpose. Uh, the Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice crosses all borders. Thank you. As Amy lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a beautiful future for all. This morning's story is Icarus, as retold by Erica Shadowsong. Daedalus was a brilliant inventor, and he had made a career, even a legend of himself for being able to create the seemingly impossible. So when he decided to escape from his tower prison by flying over the ocean like a bird, his son Icarus had no doubt he would do it. It took him only a little while, and Daedalus did the thing that no one else had ever been able to do. He created two sets of wings that, for all intents and purposes, looked like they had come from a very large bird, with a wingspan twice his and his son's own heights. He was ready to fly. At any other time in life, that would have been it. He would take off, no matter how dangerous the risk, with the untested creation, and somehow he would beat the odds, do something that was impossible for anyone else. Daedalus was older now, and he'd had his share of trouble. In fact, his proclivity for trouble was how he had wound up in this tower prison, after all. And he now had a son, so he couldn't do anything without first weighing the consequences. And he worried now, something he had hardly ever done for himself in his own youth. When the wings were finished, Daedalus showed them to his son and gave him careful instruction. When we set out over the ocean, you must take care not to fly too high. If you do, 
The heat will soon melt the wax holding these wings together, and you will fall into the sea, and I will not be able to save you. But you also must not fly too low, because the ocean spray will soak the feathers and drag you down into its depths. Be sure to follow me and do what I do until we safely reach the shore. Icarus agreed. His father knew everything. So they attached the wings to themselves one day and leapt from the high tower, catching the wind and sailing high over the endless ocean. At first, Icarus did exactly as his father had instructed. But as they continued to travel for what seemed like hours, well, naturally a fast learner, Icarus began to fly playfully, imitating the seabirds shrieking into the sky. He flew faster than his father, who was flying much more carefully. Every now and then, Icarus would hear his father call out to him to remind him to take care not to fly too high or too low. He stayed well away from the ocean spray, but he just could not resist flying higher and higher, seeing how far he could go. And the sun was really far away, so surely there was more than enough height for him to go before there was danger from it. And he probably would have been right if it weren't for the fact that as he saw the tiny silhouettes of birds on the ocean, he found himself hypnotized by its beauty and enormity. He couldn't help it. Watching the sun and the birds flying seemingly so close to it, he rose higher and higher, and he began to entertain what he knew was impossible. He began to think about what it would be like to touch the sun. Do we think it would be a good idea to touch the sun? He heard his father's voice behind him so far away, and he could hear the terror in it. But he was mesmerized by the sun. The wax holding his wings together began to melt in its heat, and he still rose higher and higher, keeping his eyes on the horizon toward the great sun. And as his wings came apart and he plunged to his death in the sea, his father watching helpless to be able to save him. Could it be that he knew he was about to die for flying too close to the sun? And could it be that he simply decided that it was worth it? Thank you.
Let us now enter into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of our immunocompromised community members. Let us please remain vigilant about health and safety with our local resurgence of COVID cases, protect our family members. As we listen to this chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. Let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. We enter our time of meditation. I welcome you to get comfortable and listen. Our bodies are vessels. They are vessels for the world, for love. They are vessels for knowledge and sometimes pain. Each week our bodies soak up so much so let us take a few moments to relax and release so that there is room to soak up just a bit more to round out the week. I welcome you to close your eyes and ground yourself where you are. Please just do what makes you most comfortable. Starting with one body part at a time, Let's focus on our toes. Are they touching the ground? Are they enclosed in socks or shoes? Feel every sensation touching your toes and release any tension held there. Now, focus on your ankles. Is there a lot of pressure on your ankles? Are your ankles crossed over themselves? Are your ankles bent at an uncomfortable angle? Feel those sensations and release any tension held there. Now focus on the rest of your legs, your calves, your knees, your thighs, all the way up into your hips. A whole week of moving through the world can build up aches and bruises. Focus on that, hold it, and then release any tension held there. 
Your hands might be resting in your lap right now. Focus on them. Your hands up to your wrists and your elbows, all the way up to your shoulders. Let your arms hang from your shoulders. Let your muscles relax and release any tension held there. Now, focus on your torso, the place where you hold your breath and your heart. Imagine each vertebrae of your spine, one sitting on top of the other. Envision where those vertebrae are connected to your ribs, holding everything in place. Your lungs filling and emptying themselves of air, your heart beating in time with the rest of your body. Have you been holding your breath? Have you been holding your chest tight all week, all day, all morning? Take a deep breath in and hold it. Feel the air filling every crevice of your lungs. Now let that breath out and release any tension held there. Continue breathing deep, full breaths, supporting every part of your body. Breathe in and out, in and out. We continue our meditation in silence and the music that follows.
Thank you, John Pfeiffer. Our reading today is adapted from The Five Jagged Rocks of Unitarian Universalism by UUA member Carrie Gottfried. We are a community of thinkers and seekers. We are heretics, the word coming from the Greek to choose. We have chosen how we want to be in relationship with each other, where we draw our wisdom from and what we believe. We are radical, liberal, and philosophically, even theologically, a rich faith. We draw on the teachings from our parent traditions, Judaism and Christianity, seeking universal meaning in those ancient texts. In the centuries in which our faith has expanded outside these boundaries, we've also expanded our sources of inspiration. We draw many of our rituals from paganism, focusing on how to embody our faith, live fully as our best selves, and respect the earth and her people. Buddhism teaches us to be mindful and disciplined and, and pre present in the moment, focusing on our actions and intentions to make the world better. Feminist and liberation theologies from various religious traditions remind us that we are not complacent in the face of change, but rather pushing forward beyond our comfort to challenge the status quo and our role in oppression. Science teaches us that we always have more to learn about life, the universe, ourselves. Ethical culture isn't the only liberal religion and many beliefs we hold are held by many. Although polls show that a large and growing number of people hold humanistic views and ethical humanistic values, as members of an ethical society, we are in the religious minority in America. Ours is one of the most transformative faiths because instead of being defined by one set creed, we are defined by how we choose to be in covenant with each other. Each person can still have their own truth, but what's more important to us than what happens after we die is how we have lived. We are a justice-seeking faith, always reaching for the beloved community. We create with courageous, courageous love. As Universalist Edwin Markham once wrote, he drew a circle to shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. If we can keep growing our circle, holding each person close, our love and our faith can only get stronger. This Sunday, we are hearing from senior leader K.C. Slack, and they'll be talking to us about heretics, the last person to be officially tried for blasphemy in the U.S., and having the courage to follow and claim your own beliefs, even when the consequences can be scary. Take it away, K.C. Thank you, Levi.
most recent special from political comedian Hassan Minhaj centers around his battle with himself over how far to take the joke. Now, if you're not familiar with Hassan Minhaj, I encourage you to seek out some of his work. He is funny and insightful. Not perfect, but mm, who is? So Hassan is notable in part for being a comedian who is willing to speak truth to power without a lot of regard for how dangerous that power is. From vulture capitalists to the Saudi Arabian government, Hassan gets himself in hot water a lot. And in recent years, he found himself getting in hotter water than he realized he was in. Pushing it to the edge, where had he entered Saudi Arabia at any point, he would certainly have been put in prison. Pushing it to the edge where suspicious white powders fell out of his mail. With a wife and a child, Hassan found himself having to ask some new questions about how far he could take the joke and I'll leave his conclusions and stories for him to tell. He does it a little better than I would. But what matters for me here is this as a piece of our reflection on courage, on what it takes to stand up, sit up, speak up, show up for the things that you believe in. So I have broadly three points today. It is valuable, it is important to voice your beliefs and sometimes there are very serious consequences for doing so. That's one. Two, our society is not done prosecuting people for blasphemy or heresy. Three, we, us at WES, us in ethical culture, us friendly with Unitarian Universalism, are praxi people, not doxy people. We're going to start with uh, a Christian church history that you might subtitle, My Favorite Heretics. First, a couple of definitions. So, orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and heresy are all words with Greek roots. Orthodoxos from orthos, which is right, and doxa, which is belief. Heterodoxy, hetero, other, doxy, belief. And heresy, as we heard in our reading, from a Greek word for choice, which I continue to find fascinating. Author Leonard Levy, in his book Blasphemy, notes that heresy is not a Hebrew term. There is no word for heresy in the pre-Christian world. And that is meaningful for the development of our United States society 
secular but heavily influenced by particular forms of Christianity as it is. So we're going to start way back at the birth of heresy. So at the first council of Nicaea, the Roman Emperor Constantine, this is 325 in the Common Era, got together 1,800 bishops from all of Christendom at the time. And in the end, between 250 and 318 attended. They were trying to find some agreement on matters of belief and practice. Things like, when is Easter? And how should you run a congregation? There had been a lot of disagreements spreading around, many starting in Alexandria, Egypt, and regarding issues of Christology. Christology is a study of the ontology, the coming existence, reality, and person of Jesus. And these theological terms do not need to stick in your brain for any more than a moment. <laughs> they are interesting to me. They do not need to be that interesting to you. <laughs> but one of the first big controversies in Christendom was called the Arian controversy, A-R-I-A-N. This is a series of Christian theological disputes that arose between Arius and Athanasius of Alexandria. The most important of these controversies concerned the substantial relationship between God the Father and Jesus. The basic question being, are God the Father and Jesus the Son made out of the same fundamental materials? Now, this is wandering off in angels on a pinhead territory, the sort of theology that is, if you'll pardon my metaphor, masturbatory more than useful. <laughs> but it winds up in some very interesting places. St. Alexander and Athenius of Alexandria, among others, argued a position known as homoousion, which is that God and Jesus are made of the same essential substance one being which is co-eternal and uncreated. Arius, for whom Arian is named, argued his position, which was, no, God the Father is eternal and uncreated, but Jesus was created at a point in time and thus not co-eternal with God, though still co-God with God. So let's put that into some terms that mean something. Is Jesus a man or God? That's actually pretty important. And it's pretty important for everything that comes in Christianity after. Because if Jesus is a man, and Christians have to take seriously the manness of Jesus, we have some new questions to ask about how he lived his life, that period from ages 18 to 30 that is not in. Bible at all. Did Jesus have sex? Did he have a wife? Boyfriends? Twelve of them? Anyway. <laughs> Most of the people at the Council of Nicaea voted in favor of the position that God and Jesus are of one uncreated substance. The remaining two, along with Arius, were exiled to Illyria. 
Sidebar, the name of Illyria in history is always very funny to me because my older siblings grew up in Illyria, Ohio. <laughs> in any event, two things are now true after the Council of Nicaea. Aryans, though not Unitarians in any particularly meaningful way, are not Trinitarians. They do not believe in a substantive difference between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. New sidebar. I have in my life only ever been able to understand the Trinity for 30-minute periods, maybe once a year. <laughs> the more important reality for our conversation is that non-Trinitarian belief is no longer heterodoxical in Christendom. It is considered heretical, and there will be consequences. So time passes, and a lot of stuff happens. There are six more ecumenical councils. The Eastern and Western churches split over things, including when is Easter. Islam comes into being. The Crusades happen. There are a lot of popes. There are a smaller number of anti-popes. St. Joan of Arc is burnt at the stake. The Gutenberg Bible is printed. Christian colonialism in the Americas begins. And Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel. And then, it is October 31st of 1517, and Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to a door. His theses are mostly concerned with the church's now established practices of selling indulgences, saying, oh, you can pay for your sins, literally. Oh, there's nothing like that in our modern society. This kicks off what is known as the Protestant Reformation, though I must mention there were Protestants before Martin Luther, and Martin Luther had no intention of becoming Protestants. But in these first thousand years between the First Council of Nicaea and Martin Luther's theses, Arianism and other non-Trinitarian beliefs had taken hold in mostly Eastern and Southern Europe, among the Visigoths, the Vandals, and other Germanic peoples, with the last Aryan king in Europe being killed in 671. As we think about the horrors of colonialism, as we have been doing some this month, we might also do to remember that Christianization was also a violent process that the unique cultures of much of Europe were subsumed into a normative Christendom, often by literally killing everybody who was in charge and threatening to kill you if you didn't go to the church they told you to go to. The first recorded English anti-Trinitarian was forced to recant by an Anglican archbishop named Thomas Cranmer in 1548. There was also a radical reformation criticizing both Catholic and Lutheran practices, mostly about the obsession with a particular type of learning in the clergy of these traditions. In 1550, the Anabaptist Council of Venice came together to discuss the reformation and committed themselves to the views of a man named Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus, perhaps my very favorite heretic. 
Servetus was a Spanish theologian, a physician, a cartographer, and a Renaissance humanist who was also the first European to correctly describe the function of the pulmonary system. Quite a guy. Notable that African thinkers had known how the pulmonary system worked for years. Servetus was imprisoned as a heretic in Catholic France, escaped across the border as the French burned him in effigy. The French, they like to burn a thing. It works for them on some stuff. His conviction, along, his conviction rested in large part on 17 letters that had been written by John Calvin. John Calvin, who Calvinism is named for. I'm going to hold on to my rant about Calvinism. <laughs> but if you want it, it's always here. <laughs> Somewhat inexplicably, Servetus flees France to Italy, which is also notably Catholic, and then to Geneva, where John Calvin lives, where he goes on to attend a service led by John Calvin. He is arrested and ultimately burnt atop a pile of his own books. I'm sorry, if they have to kill you with your books, you've done something right. Servetus's fatal charges were, in Calvin's words, execrable blasphemies, specifically non-Trinitarianism and Anabaptism. Anabaptism, in brief, is a belief that you don't need to baptize a baby into a community it cannot make a choice about, that it is, in fact, important to wait until a child is old enough to make their own choice. Personally, I don't really care about baptism, but if you're going to do it, the kid better at least be able to say words, personally. However, Calvin's writings make it clear that his problems with Servetus were not just his theology. It is clear that Calvin thought that Servetus engaged in non-normative sexual behavior, and that Servetus was too friendly with Jews and Muslims. I'm going to fast forward a whole lot now, and while I'm fast forwarding through history, take a drink of water. So now it is the 1700s, and we are in the baby United States of America. It is, in fact, 1774, so the baby United States of America, and a man named Abner Neeland is born. By the age of 21, Neeland had become a Baptist lay preacher, but he very quickly realized that baptism was not his jam and converted to universalism. At the time, and now, as you might imagine, any insistence that nobody is damned to hell for eternity, pretty controversial. But, uh, Neeland also didn't find universalist Christianity particularly satisfying in the long run. In fact, over the years, he became less and less connected to those communities, ultimately leaving universalism, focusing his writing 
work and speaking on free thought and pantheism. I imagine I do not have to explain free thought to this crowd, but in brief, it is what it sounds like. Thinking for yourself without overvaluing tradition, revelation, or authority. Pantheism, briefly, is the belief that reality, the universe, and the cosmos are identical with divinity. Neeland wrote and spoke openly about his newfound religious and theological beliefs, but he was also very open about his support for birth control and racial equity, including being a man in the late 17 and early 1800s who was openly in favor of interracial marriage. He worked in community, which, among other things, hosted weeknight all-ages dances, which his previous Baptist friends really did not like, during which people came together from all walks of life, and notably during which laborers came together and planned to uphold their own dignity. Between 1834 and 1838, Neeland was tried for blasphemy by the state of Massachusetts four times, finally resulting in a 60-day sentence. He died about four years later. Officially, Abner Neeland is the last person to have been tried for blasphemy in these United States of America. This is, in fact, the title he was given when I learned about him recently in a course I'm taking through the American Humanist Association on the histories of humanisms. And I thought, is he? <laughs> Were the Scopes Monkey Trials not a blasphemy trial? Yes. In my mind, though the Scopes trials were very intentional, any discussion about whether or not you could teach the science of evolution is a question about blasphemy. What about McCarthyism? Was McCarthyism a type of searching for blasphemous or heretical people? Yeah. The Red Scare, the Lavender Scare, the purging of people who might have been communists, might have been gay from government positions and eventually from Hollywood. These are probably actually blasphemy trials. What about the laws in Florida and Texas that say that if a queer person has a picture of them and their spouse on their desk, they can be fired. This, to me, all feels like, sounds like, looks like, walks like, quacks like, a blasphemy trial. An attempt, sometimes subtle and sometimes less so, to institute an orthodoxy on the American people. To say that to be protected by the law, you must believe the right things.
This is the world we find ourselves in. This is the world we find ourselves needing to make our choices about what we are willing to say in and who we must be. It is real and dangerous what we face in the wider world. The danger varies depending on social location and what exactly you choose to say in public, but it is real and present for all of us who live on the outside of this orthodoxy. We here at the Washington Ethical Society, we in and near ethical culture, we in and near Unitarian Universalism are not doxy people. We are not people obsessed with if you have the right beliefs. We are praxy people. Praxy also comes from Greek roots. Praxy is about practice. Orthopraxy is about right behavior. You might consider Buddhism an orthopraxis-oriented faith. You might consider Judaism an orthopraxis-oriented faith. I'm not sure we're an ortho-oriented group either. Rather, I think we are hetero, which is wild for me to say. <laughs> oh, I just caught that one. We are heteropraxical. So you can be doing a lot of things that are the right thing. There are many things that are right, and we can make some agreements about which things live inside the container of right. We can acknowledge that not everybody actually needs to punch a Nazi, but that that might be the correct move for somebody, that somebody might be called to that behavior for good reason. We might not all want to get in trouble with the Saudi Arabian government, we might not all want to get in a lot of trouble with the United States government. But we can all behave in ways that are what we understand to be right. Empowered by our own roots in free thinking, to see that neither tradition nor authority, not revealed belief or observed belief, can be the whole of everyone's truth all the time. There is a wild amount of freedom in the way we believe, think, work, and move together. And that can be scary. All on its own, divorced from the potential consequences, the openness of the future can be terrifying our own need to play an active role in who we are and what we think, daunting. And so we do it together. In fact, the orthopraxis of heteropraxy might be doing it together. So Hassan Minhaj finds his line at the community of his family. When the community of his family becomes in danger, he knows he must stop. That's a fair line. 
it's not everybody's line. Your family might feel differently. My little family feels a little bit differently about how much trouble I might reasonably get us into. But you do it together. You make choices with your community, needing not to be the only person who is right or the person who the big group says is right, but someone who has community, who has shared experience and care with other people, other beings, other life in the universe. This has been my favorite heretics. I'm Casey Slack. Thank you. Thank you so much, Casey. In a few moments, we will have our community sharing time when you can write into the chat or share in person what resonated with you in this platform. While we listen to today's musical response, you might prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an experience you had here at WES that the platform brings to mind. This is a song that many of you know. The verses have a lot of words to them. The chorus, the refrain, has very few words. <laughs> I invite you to be brave and sing along.
I appreciate those of you who are brave and sang along. And now it is time to be brave and share with your community. This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning by reflecting on the platform or what resonated with you and your personal experience. For our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat. Um, or if you are here in person, you can come to the microphone here on the floor, but please keep your comments brief so there's time for many to share. Alrighty. Adam Limehouse says, that was a fantastic platform. Thank you, Casey. Joe Klein says, amazing platform, Casey. I love the connections you draw between things. Laura Steele says, whew, Casey, that is a whole lot to digest. <laughs> thank you for the, thank you for the push, the, pushing the envelope ideas, thoughts, direction. I want more. Let us all find a way to stand up, be seen, be heard. Sue Smith says, outstanding, riveting, thought-provoking platform. Thanks, Casey. Marika and Hunter say, we really appreciated the comprehensive historical style to this platform. Thanks, Casey. Robin says, goodness gracious, fabulous set of thoughts and facts. Thank you, Casey. This platform brings to mind how much I love the community of Wes. I'm so very much looking forward to the activities like the auction and stone soup. Can't wait to see all the kids back for Sunday school, which I will say more about later. <laughs> Bill Wilson says, I wonder how much of heretical we can read it, read it to the misfits, as opposed to the people who academically for theoretically see the conflict as the problem between norms and reality. Now, let's turn our attention to commenters in the hall. Please begin by saying your name and pronouns, and please keep your comments brief so others have a chance to share. Uh, Michael Dimian, he, him. Um, so I was baptized and raised in the Egyptian or Coptic Orthodox Church. Uh, so after about 30 years of trying to get as far away from that history, uh, Casey, my mother, thanks you for bringing us back all the way around to Alexandria and Nicaea. But, you know, growing up in that, the other thing that I tried to escape was the fascinating part about their orthodoxy is that it's very much based in victimhood or a feeling of being oppressed which I find to be sort of the most challenging part of heteropraxy is sort of appreciating the idea that, you know, being oppressed, being in the minority, and, you know, being the oppressor are not as simple as most orthodox practices would have us think. So I really appreciate your great, great. Hi, my name is Peter Bishop, and Casey, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful platform. Uh, I myself uh, have become a philosopher, and as a philosopher, I've, I'm very interested in history. And since I'm a philosopher of religion, I'm interested in the history of religion, and especially as it leads to where we are today uh, in ethical culture and religious humanism. 
So I have a tail that covers the same time period that is completely different. Okay, the details of the story are totally different. Actually, having come from a long line of Moravians myself, I really like to include uh, one of those heretics, Jan Hus, who was burned at the stake in 1415. <laughs> but uh, when, when I look at the history that I like to tell, the difference between the history that I like to tell and what Casey said is that I concentrate on how did we get to this point of wanting to think for ourselves. And when you concentrate on that, it just turns out you get a totally different history. So I just want to share that with you and thank Casey again because her story, you know, the interesting thing about history is there are lots of ways to tell it. And so uh, there are these two ways of telling it and hers was a perfectly good one. Good morning, I'm Karen Schofield-Lake, Purr and Purrs, and um, I want to give another shout out to maybe our one of our favorite heretics, Felix Adler, founder of Ethical Culture, who um, I think was on a path to be a reformed rabbi and kind of reformed himself right out of Judaism and created this thing that has become Ethical Culture. So I think that's, you know, we've heard parts of his story, but like to put him in the company of, of heretics today. Um, and I wanted to, you're talking about the experience um, kind of current and modern experiences of heresy and just tell briefly the story of when uh, it's almost 20 years ago now that I was going for um, Virginia certification to do weddings, right? So we get trained through ethical culture and endorsed by the AU and you take your paperwork to wherever you, the jurisdiction and the person who was the um, initial clerk for that, um, I could see her desk area, which had many very prominent Christian phrases and symbols and things like that. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. Um, but, you know, got up to hand in my paperwork and she took a look at it and she said, I never heard of this. And pushed it back at me. And I was like, oh, bring it bring it. Um, so, so I said, well, would you like to hear a bit about ethical culture? I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Uh, you know, so I said, so how do we proceed here? She said, well, I don't know. I have to check about this. And so she went off into another room and came back with a more senior clerk um, who clearly had some suspicion in his face as he was coming forward. And I think I had some um, challenge in my face. I think when he arrived at me, he kind of saw me and he took a breath and he's like, so what do we have here? And I said, hmm, paperwork, you know, what have you. Oh, oh, okay. And they found some reason that there was something in the paperwork that was not correct. Um, and told me I had to go off and get some other things and to come back. And so I did. And when I came back, the same woman was like, oh, you again. <laughs> and the clerk came out from the other clerk came out from that. Oh, you again. I said, yes, I believe everything's in order. And he very regretfully said, I suppose so. And signed off on the paperwork. <laughs> Josh, uh, he, him, I'm up here just to give thanks and to, and, um, to say to the, to the chorus and the strings and the percussion and, and the readings and, and everything today were really top notch and, and express my thanks for that. Thank you all. Let me now check to see if any more comments have come in on Zoom.
Um, I see that Shayla Bokum says, I was recently the target of online bullying, like what Casey described. I posted a meme making fun of conservatives in the media who objected to LGBTQ, a black mermaid, Lizzo playing the flute, Colin Kaepernick, um, and football players taking a knee. I was publicly accused of racism and raked over the coals for days. Kristen Hunter says, I love that I can embellish my answer when folks ask where I go to church. Oh, to Wes, I'm a heteropraxical religious humanist. <laughs> goes on to say, an instant conversation, chew on that. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen. <laughs> Thank you all to the who shared their thoughts and attention. Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, we are sharing half of the authoring with Brigada Solidaria del Oeste, or Solidarity Brigade of the West, a self-managed community initiative that supports grassroots efforts and collective community processes in Western Puerto Rico. The group was formed in 2017 to support families and communities in the <clears throat> excuse me, in their recovery process after Hurricane Maria. Their mission is to promote the self-sustainability development of communities through diverse human resources in order to achieve social, food, economic, and cultural sovereignty. Let us all take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, we offer several options. As noted on the screen, the number to give by text is 202-335-1885. And you can donate online via tiny.cc westgives or by clicking on give on our website, ethicalsociety.org. You could place a cash or check in the basket at the back of the hall on your right out, and you can always send a check by mail. Thank you for your generosity we will now receive your gifts and the gifts of music from the West Chorus Band.
Thank you so much to the many people who helped create this morning's time together. Staff members Ndara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Maceo Thomas, and Tom Hutton. Interim music coordinator Leah Morris. The West Chorus led by Perry Bider. The band and John Pfeiffer. Tech team members John Lika, Denise Howell, and Kate Lang. Slide artists John and Abby Dakin. Zoom usher Joe Klein. In-person greeters Alex Abbott and Donna Taylor. And virtual coffee hour host Kristen Hunter. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for a social hour in person and around the foyer and the patio or for virtual coffee hour via Zoom. First though, I want to mention a few things upcoming in the life of our community. Next Sunday, October 30th, is our fall membership meeting from 12.20 p.m. to 2 p.m. in person and via Zoom. I do encourage you, however, to attend the meeting in person if able, as our technology still makes seamless particip participation virtually difficult. The meeting will provide an opportunity for a board update and to hear our first senior leader report from KC. You should also have received an electronic ballot for the Lay Leadership Development Committee, LLDC, election. Plus, it will be preceded by the Golden Spoon Cookie Contest. <laughs> Wes's Sunday Ethical Education for Kids, or SEEK, program is beginning next month. There will be three cohorts pre-K to fifth grade, sixth grade to eighth grade, and high school teen group. Until more volunteers who do not have to be parents are recruited to allow the program to expand. If you want to play more of a role in the village that helps raise Wes's young people, please email Ndara Miles at ndaram at ethicalsociety.org. It is a great way to be involved in the community. Speaking of November, we are two short weeks away from the West Auction on Saturday evening, November 5th. A detailed email with lots of updates and information about the auction was sent to West members, so please read that email. Please upload your donation information by the end of today, and please purchase your tickets and reserve babysitting, which is available via the auction website. The link is on Wes's website. That's it for today's announcements. As always, you can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails and on the calendar page of Wes's website. Next week's platform will be our annual Remembrance Sunday. As we continue with multimedia platforms, attending can mean tuning in on Zoom or coming in person. We are no longer requesting advanced reservation to attend in person, and in those of and those of you who are here today already know, there is now just a brief check-in process at the door. Thank you all for being part of Platform today and I invite you to join in our closing song, Always With You by Indigenous. Joe, Jason, and Tom for uh, service above and beyond the call of duty. Joe was actually out of the country most of this last month but they managed to get together to rehearse last night <laughs> in order to be able to play the
A last few reminders before we leave. If you are new to our community, please send an email to membership coordinator Macy Thomas and introduce yourself. For those who wish to socialize online, to reach virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go out into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment to mutuality, bringing our whole selves and honoring the fullness of one another and our quest for a better world. Again, thank you all for joining at today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.